Good morning. I never take it personally that when I stand up, the kids all leave. <laughs> Love to see them go. Well, don't take that wrong either. <laughs> well, um, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine a greater promise than the one we're going to talk about today, and a, a promise that changed the world. We're going to talk about the greatest, that's actually what I'm calling this sermon, the greatest promise God has ever given. And um, it's a familiar passage. In fact, we're going to talk at about 12 promises because the passage we're going to look at, it's got 12 promises, but it all boils down to one. And I want to start the sermon by asking the same question I asked last week to you all. Are you living in the promises that God has given you? I don't mean for that to be a rhetorical question. Are you living in the promises that God has given you? And as I said, we're going to look at 12 promises that get wrapped up and summarized in one. So you'll turn to Luke chapter 1, because if you, if you will live in these promises, it'll change your world. So Luke chapter 1, and when you find that, let's stand to our feet, and we'll, um, we'll, we'll start jumping into these promises right away. And you'll recognize the story. It's one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Here we go. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and we introduced Elizabeth last week, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, the descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. <laughs> How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. That would be John the Baptist. And, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me, as you have said. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Okay, you may be seated. <clears throat> This uh, last phrase that Mary says, may your word to me be fulfilled. The word he, she's referring to is the promises we just read. And I said, Gabriel gave 12 promises to her. Last week, we looked at the promises that Gabriel, the angel, gave to Zechariah. He gave 10. John the Baptist is not as great as Jesus. Jesus has 12. 12 is a very biblical number. There's the 12 tribes of Israel. There's the 12 original flavors of ice cream. It's in the Bible. 
Um, there's the 12 disciples. So, you know, 12 is a really biblical number. So these 12 promises, may these promises that you made, she says to Gabriel, may they be fulfilled. There's our promise word. May, it be, may they be fulfilled in me. So this, let's jump back to the beginning of the story. Gabriel, this angel, straight from God. Again, we saw him last week. And, you know, angels just don't show up <laughs> all over the place. When an angel shows up, it's a big deal. So from right off the bat, we're like, oh, this must be a big deal. But then it goes downhill for a while because it, the angel comes to this town called Nazareth, which, you know, we see Nazareth as a holy city. It's a special place. It's where Jesus grew up. You know, I take people to Israel from time to time. I just got back a couple of weeks ago and I took them to Nazareth and it's amazing. It's, it's beautiful. There's a, there's a very special place and there's all these tourist buses because everybody wants to go to Nazareth. Everybody wants to see where Jesus grew up. It's a holy place. This is where the Annunciation happened. It's a big deal. But that's today. It was not a big deal in the first century. In fact, some people are surprised to hear this. Nazareth is not even mentioned in the whole Old Testament. It's not a special city. It's not a big deal. There's no, nothing special about it at all. And everybody knows if God's gonna do something special, especially historic, it's gonna be in an important town like Jerusalem, the, the city of God, you know, Jerusalem, the, the city of the great king. It's gonna be there, not in Nazareth. <laughs> do you remember, um, you know, fast forward 30 years, you remember Jesus is launching his ministry. He's calling disciples. And this one disciple that he called named Philip, Philip went and got his friend Nathaniel and said, hey, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember what Nathaniel said? I'll put it on the screen. Nazareth, you gotta say this as snide as you can. Nazareth? You know, that's, that's how he says it. Can anything good come from there? Now, that's not Nathaniel being negative. You know, he's not married to negative Nancy. This is not negative Nathaniel. He, he's just reflecting the way everybody saw Nazareth in that day. It's a no-name town. I mean, it has a name, but it's not important. And it especially can't be important to the greatest promise ever given. So <laughs> the passage starts off with the great Gabriel and then downhill, because not only is it Nazareth, then this... Um, to a virgin pledge to be married. So, so the greatest promise ever is given to a, a young girl. I mean, her parents are not named. She's not a significant person from a significant family. And she's not living in a significant town. I mean, things are not going well in this story if this is gonna be the greatest promise ever. So you can write down in your notes that the greatest promise ever given is given to the least likely person, or at least the least likely person in the eyes of the people of those days. So, you know, maybe you could wrap it up this way. Mary was a nobody from a no-name no parents from a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And if you've, if, you know, if you've seen the movie um, or read the book, uh, Where the Crawdads Sing, you know, and the Kaya, this young girl, is the, is the star of the, of, the, of the book. That's kind of the way people saw Mary. Not exactly, but she's just, she's not important. And it's so significant because that's the opposite of the way it is today. 
um, if you include the Catholic Church in Christendom, then most of the world actually worships Mary today. She had a no-name beginning, but today she's worshiped by millions of people. How did this happen? Certainly not because of the Bible. I want to actually just take a couple seconds and and help you see something that's very important that a lot of people miss. Um, Because this this special person, because Mary is indeed special. She's the mother of Jesus. But we, you know, we, you know, the people who go to church have gone way overboard. And it's all started from this verse 28 in your text, which where Gabriel says, greetings to Mary. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. This is the verse that they point to where the verse, hail Mary full of, or the prayer, not a verse, the prayer, hail Mary full of grace. In fact, some of you grew up praying that prayer. There's a good amount of former Catholics here. And I'm not here to, to trash the Catholics. I'm here to exalt Jesus and to say anybody who worships Mary is not, is actually committing blasphemy. Because you don't worship a person, you worship God. And so, um, again, I'm not here to trash people, but it's, it's really important. So I'm gonna take a couple of seconds to just help you see, in, in church history, nobody worshiped Mary for the first 500 years. She was seen as special because she was the mother of Jesus. But then things began to change. And uh, again, about five, around five or 600 years after Christ, she starts getting worshiped. She starts getting venerated. And, they, and then they started this prayer, Hail Mary, about the 12th century. And they said it came from here. So let me help you see the genesis, you know, kind of not the genesis, the, um, the, the process of this. In the Greek, this is in the English, in the Greek, this literally says, greetings, um, hello, that's what the word means, one who has received grace. So this phrase, you are highly favored, you are highly graced in your English NIV, literally means one who has received grace. It does not mean full of grace, which is the way it began to become seen. Actually, this phrase and this word um, shows up another place in the Bible. It's Ephesians 1, 6 where Paul uses this root word to refer to how everyone in Christ has received this grace. So when you compare that, you go, oh, wait a minute. So Mary's not being singled out as special amongst anybody else. This word is used to refer to everybody in Christ. And it's a, it's a word that means grace. You have received grace. You have, you're the graced one. So, so if you're a Christian today, you also are a graced one, amen? So, you know, you're special, but you know, Mary's not more special than you. I want you to see that. So in the Greek, this is what it is translated. Then it got translated into Latin and greetings became hail. Well, the word hail began to mean more and more praise, like hail Caesar. So it's a way of praising someone. The angel is not saying praise you, Mary, but as the translation got into Latin, it became hail, which became now praise Mary. And this phrase has received grace, 
became full of grace. And that's how we got the phrase, Hail Mary, full of grace. A prayer millions of people have prayed to a human being. We don't pray to human beings. We pray to God. So I took a little bit of time here to help you see um, that this language that they say comes from this verse has twisted to become Hail Mary full of grace. And so the, the, why that's so important, because when they use this phrase full of grace, they're saying, since you have grace, Mary, and are full of it, we're gonna ask you to bestow it upon us. And, and you can see how wrongheaded this is. <laughs> you ask God for his grace. You don't ask Mary for her grace. She's merely a graced one. She's not one full of grace. And, and one more thing I'll say about this is, um, this is not about Mary's righteousness or Mary's you know, holiness or, or her you know, immaculateness. It's because if you compare the story right before this one is a story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, which we just looked at last week. And there are so many similarities, it's ridiculous, between Elizabeth and Zechariah's visit from the angel and um, Mary's visit from Gabriel. Let me put up a couple of these similarities. In both stories, the angel Gabriel appears to them. In both stories, they're given an assurance. In both stories, a birth is promised. Zechariah is promised John the Baptist. Mary is promised Jesus. In both stories, the angel tells them what to name the child. You know, or all these other things. And yet with all these similarities, there's one glaring difference. And that is, is that while Zechariah and Elizabeth were called blameless, and called righteous, Mary is not. You can search in vain for anything that says Mary was righteous or Mary was blameless. So if anybody wants, you know, should draw from this passage who should be worshiped, you could say Zechariah and Elizabeth because they're blameless and righteous. But again, they're just humans. So where this idea that Mary is righteous and holy and divine and, and you know, full of grace came from is just a sad uh, story that has now, I mean, I'm sorry to say this, but has dumped millions of people into blasphemous malpractice. And I, I, just, I know it's really, really strong, um, but it's, God says you shall worship no one else but me. So that's like breaking the first commandment, right? So that's why I took the time to see it. So you have this language of uh, Mary and I believe we should honor her. She's the mother of Jesus. But we should honor her for her role as the mother of Jesus and her response, which we'll see in a couple minutes, not for her righteousness. Okay, we cool about that? So the story starts out about Mary and it seems to like it's all about Mary and you know some people want to make it all Mary, but it's not about Mary. Mary's just the, the, the platform, the stage. She's just the, the bit part, as we said last week, for the greatest promise that God has ever given. It was given to Mary, but it's, she's not the greatest promise. And this is, this is an easy one. What's the greatest promise that God's ever given? It's Jesus. And that, that's what the, the, the Gabriel's gonna tell us now. In fact, I want you to call him Jesus. And then all these 12 promises are all about Jesus. And it, it shifts from telling us about Mary now to be all being about Jesus. But... Before we shift into all these promises about Jesus, 
we got to go back to something that looks like it's about Mary, and that is that Luke, the writer of the gospel, is adamant that we see that she's a virgin. Three times in this short passage, he uses this word. And again, people want to make this all about Mary, but the virgin birth is not about Mary. You didn't realize that. It's not about Mary. It's about Jesus. So you could write this down. The greatest promise ever given required a virgin birth. That's why Luke, the writer, is telling us about Mary's virginity. It's not about her because what is going to be said about Jesus, how Gabriel sent from God is going to introduce Jesus, starts with Mary, this virgin birth. Now, why is this so important? Because it is. It's, I said, I use the word required. The greatest promise ever given, Jesus requires a virgin birth. Why? You could say because it's one of those promises that's been fulfilled. Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him. We all know what the word Emmanuel means. It means God with us. An incredible prophecy, 800 years before Christ. Maybe that's why the virgin birth is so important because it fulfills scripture. That's important, but if you've got your notes with you, I'm gonna give you three other, I think, more important reasons why the virgin birth is essential. The first one is the fact that it confirms Jesus's heavenly origin. In other words, Jesus did not get created here. He he already existed in heaven. He left heaven as the second person of the Trinity and became man. But that's not where Jesus was, you know, um, created. He was never created. Jesus was never created. He's always existed in heaven as a second person of the Trinity. Watch what the angel says in verse 35 when Mary says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born. Time out, wait. Holy One, that's God. God is the only Holy One. So how does God be born? And know that's a great question. That's a fascinating question. And that takes us into the, the mystery and the beauty and the miracle of the incarnation. Because what the virgin birth teaches us is that Jesus, obviously a man, because anybody could look at the baby Jesus, boy Jesus, teenager Jesus, 20-something Jesus, 30-something Jesus. Anybody could look at Jesus in the first century and go, he's a man. He didn't have a halo. (laughs) Didn't have a halo. He didn't glow. He didn't look like God. So everybody saw him as a man. But the virgin birth helps us realize this man is like no other man. He is God. He's the Holy One who will become human. That's why we use the phrase, be born. God became flesh. That's the incarnation. God became human. How? Because of the virgin birth. In fact, when Mary asked, how can this happen? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come on you. This is very, very strong biblical language. It's mysterious, 
but it's not, it's not a precedent because this exact same Greek word will come upon you is the same word that Luke uses four chapters later in Luke chapter four, uh, verse 18, when he says, he puts in the words of, of Jesus, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Same word. And Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, which if you read that in the, in the Greek Septuagint, it uses that same word. The spirit was, uh, will come upon you. And it's also the exact same word that's used to describe David, King David, when he was being anointed way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel the prophet anoints young David because God says he's gonna be king. And the Bible says from that moment on, the spirit came upon David. So this language, 1 Samuel 16, 13, Isaiah 61, 1, Luke chapter four, verse 16, all these words use the same idea. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's, he's coming upon Mary, just like he came upon David, just like he, he came upon the, the servant in Isaiah, like he will come upon Jesus. And it's mysterious. And I don't know exactly how it happened. Maybe it's just like um, creation, where the Bible says, and God said, let there be light. Maybe that's all it was, is the Holy Spirit saying, let there be a conception. And, and so this mysterious, miraculous you know, conception where the, where the Holy Spirit causes Mary to become pregnant, so now there's a holy origin and a human mother, you have the God-man. So this signifies Jesus's sinless nature. Why is it important for Jesus to be sinless? Oh, only because your salvation depends on it. <laughs> it's kind of important. What do you mean by that? Well, I'll, I'll put this next thing up on the screen. It qualifies Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, it was a man dying. But it was also God became flesh dying. So when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice was unlike any other sacrifice. If you're reading our church-wide devotions right now, we're going through Hebrews. And the writer of the Hebrews is all excited about comparing Jesus to Moses, to the angels, to the sacrifices. And he said, you know, the sacrifices that were being made every day in the temple to take away sin, to atone for sin, to, so people could, could go before God. All these sacrifices, all this blood, they're imperfect. They can't take away our sin from our life. Only a perfect sacrifice, that's Jesus. And by perfect, I mean a, someone with sinless nature. That's why it's so important. When Jesus died on the cross, it was God himself, which is so incredible, taking upon humanity, and when he went to the cross, he took all the sins of the world upon him, his sinless self. See, if, if, if I were to die for you, it would be an altruistic thing. It would be wonderful. But it, it couldn't save you because I'm just a man. doesn't matter who dies. If they're just a human being, that death can't do anything. But if that death is the death of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, sinless nature, you know, divinity, and yet full humanity, that sacrifice 
is the perfect sacrifice, that sacrifice can take away your sin. This is where you shout. <laughs> that sacrifice can wash away your sins forever. So that, that's why the virgin birth is so important. You take away the virgin birth and you don't have a you know, God man. You have just a man. See what I mean? So, so we just wanted to make sure that that's why Luke is helping us see how important this is. And Mary's kind of like, all, her eyes are all big. You know, it's like, what is going on? I mean, she's hearing promises that are blowing her mind. And I'm going to actually walk through some of these, all 12 of these promises now and help you see how Mary was hearing them and what they mean for you and I today. So she's trying to figure out all of these promises that Gabriel is making. It's starting to make sense to her, but even as it's making sense, she's like, God, can this be true? So let's open up your Bible and let's start looking, working through these. What are the promises about? Verse, promise number one. I'm going I'm to number these promises. From verse 31, the angel promises. I know this is hard to believe, Mary, but you will conceive. Well, she probably was thinking, well, yeah, when I get married, uh, thanks. I can't wait to get married. You know, then I, we can have a kid. But she's soon to find out that that's not what's about to happen. I promise you, you will conceive. You will give birth to a son. Well, that's nice to know. This is a promise. You are to call him Jesus. Well, instantly, as we said last week, the Jews knew what names meant, and Jesus means God saves. Yeshua means God, Yahweh saves. Now, to be honest, it's a common name. Uh, sometimes it was Joshua. Sometimes it was Yeshua. The English way of saying it is Jesus. The Hebrew way of saying it is Yeshua or Joshua. That's a common name. So just because your name says God saves doesn't mean you're the Savior. But we're going to find out that, you know, in later that Jesus is the Savior. How does God save? Through Jesus himself, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his blood shed. So Mary doesn't know any of that yet. All she knows is that the angel, which is crazy, is standing in front of her promising you're going to have a boy and you're going to name him Jesus. Now, the next thing he, she says, he says is cool. He'll be great, but Gabriel said that about John the Baptist too. But now it's about to shift. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Something dramatically just happened. Um, uh, so it's great that I'm going to have a boy. I'm, it's gonna, I'm gonna name him Jesus. Okay, I'll do that. It's awesome. He's going to be great. But whoa, 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 whoa! He will be called. I mean, isn't that blasphemy? My kid is going to be called the Son of the Most High. And while her head is spinning, that Gabriel says one more thing that just makes everything click. And that next promise, the sixth promise, is when Gabriel says God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, Gabriel's not saying that Jesus's earthly father is David. We know Jesus's earthly father is Joseph. This is Bible language. This language of your father is biblical language to describe your forefathers, your ancestors. So what? Very clearly in Mary's mind, because she's a first century Jew, this language means to her instantly, my son, is going to be the promised Messiah, the king of Israel, who's in the line of David. 
That's, what she, that's how she heard it. We are like, we're like, oh, that's cool. He's gonna be a king. But Mary heard, what? Because she knows, like every Jew knew, the promise of 2 Samuel, where God says to David, your house, that is your lineage, and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established. Wait, 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 wait a minute. All it takes is a little bit of history for us to know that, that David had a son named Solomon, who then his two sons split the kingdom. So David's great-grandson split the kingdom in the, within a couple hundred years. It, it, Israel's gone. Judas, it's over. The, there's no king. There's no Israel. They've been taken away into captivity. What are you talking about? He's talking about the descendant of David from the line of David so many years later who would take up this promise. And this is the promise that the Jews waited for, that there would be a descendant of David who would become a king and he would be the Messiah. And that promise is the promise that would change the world. But it's not just one promise. That's just one example. These promises are all over the Bible. So let me pause for a minute and explain the graphic, the icons here, because some of you are like, what, what are that, what's that all about? This first one here, that, that is, that's the, a standing lion, which represents the, the tribe of Judah. That comes from Genesis chapter 49, where Israel is blessing his children, his 12 sons, and says to one of them, Judah, my son, is a young lion. A couple of words later, the scepter, that's king language, will not depart from Judah, the lion, nor the ruler Seth. This is a prophecy all the way back in Genesis that Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah and he will be called the lion of Judah, which is exactly the phrase that the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, uses the phrase, the title for Jesus, the lion of Judah. He is the promised one. All the way back to the first book of the Bible, the Lion of Judah, and he will have a scepter. He will be ruler. He will be a king. And so they developed these, these um, graphic arts to describe, you know, to, to picture the Lion of Judah. And that became the insignia for the city of Jerusalem. It became the, the insignia for, the, for the David's throne. And it became the insignia for the coming Messiah that he will be from the tribe of Judah. He will be the lion of Judah. So that's what the lion means. And then last week, this is water. That refers to the prophecy about John the Baptist. And then today, we're looking at the kingship of Jesus because that's where the next prophecies go. The sixth prophecy was about, right, about the king, his, his throne will never end. Then seventh promise, your son, Mary, will reign over Jacob's, that's Israel, 12 sons, his descendants forever. And then this one, his kingdom will never end. That's a quote from Daniel. That's a quote from Isaiah. That's a quote from 2 Samuel. This idea that Messiah's kingdom will never end gets picked up again and again, promise after promise. And all these, this is what, what I want you to see. All of these are splashing across Mary's face. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a lot more than a special son. This is a lot more than a, a special moment. You're saying that my son is the promised Messiah and his kingdom will never end? You got it, Mary. Whoa. Everybody say, whoa. And better. One, two, three. Whoa. Okay, good, good. You got it. I think that's fun. So, 
the Holy Spirit is going to make this happen. He'll come upon you. And we, just as we saw, the, the same Spirit came upon David, King David, same, same language. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. He will be called the Son of God. So it's moved from, it's going to be a special son to, he's going to be the Messiah, to, are you saying he's going to be God? Because he is great and as elevated as the Jewish people saw Messiah, they didn't see him as God. They saw him as some, a, a man descended from King David, a special man, an anointed man. But they had no way of grasping that, that this king, Jesus, would be God in the flesh, that Messiah would actually be God himself coming to earth. It's, this, this is a mind-boggling truth. So that brings us to the last, the 12th promise. And this is important because these are crazy promises. It's the last one. No word from God will ever fail. Well, this is not from God. This is from Gabriel. Oh, Gabriel was sent from God. He's the messenger of God. This is God's word. It, it will never fail, or you could translate it. Um, no word from God is impossible. Some of you are familiar with that, that language of nothing is impossible with God. No word from God is impossible because this sounds impossible. It's cool that I'm gonna have a son. It's cool that he's special. It's cool he's gonna be a Messiah. That blows my mind, but I, I, I don't have any category for these last three but you're telling me that this is definitely going to happen? So we can wrap up these 12 promises into one phrase, and it's in your outline if you want to fill it out. God's gracious promises are to save people. I, I didn't put his people because that, that could get misunderstood. It should just be Israelites, but it's bigger than Israelites. It's bigger than just Jews. God's promises are at work to save people through Jesus, all those 12 promises, that's what they're adding up to today. That's what they're all saying. And I want to help bring this into today's world because when I say people, let me, let me take you two chapters forward or one chapter forward to now Jesus has been born. The promises are starting to get fulfilled. The angels appear to the shepherds, you're tracking with me, the Christmas story. And they say these famous words, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This is bigger than Israel. This is bigger than Jewish people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. Woo, now Mary doesn't know yet, that's, but it sure sounds like the angel is saying back in, back in Luke chapter 1, back to Nazareth, back to this moment where, where the Gabriel the angel is saying these things. It sure sounds like he's saying that my son is going to be the Messiah and my son is going to be the king and his kingdom will never end and my son is going to somehow be God. Mind blown, you know, how can this all be? Now, I could stop right there, but let me finish the sermon by making some application to us because what I see happening in this story with Mary is the way all of God's promises work. It's kind of cool. There's a pattern happening here. The first thing is this verse we looked at in verse 28, where the angel says, you are highly favored. You are graced. Remember we said, you are the graced one. And this is true for you and I. When the promise of salvation comes to us, it comes by God's grace. How do promises, God's promises work? 
by his grace. So let me remind you of what I said last week. It's not about you trying to be good. This is so deeply embedded in us. Some of us just are working so hard to be good so God will bless us. We're just deep down inside. We're convinced that if I live right, God has to bless me. If I do good, then God's obligated to bless me and no promises will be true. And the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you are saved by grace. So it's God's promises are built on, based upon God's grace. All his promises are his gracious promises. But then notice this phrase, the Lord is with you. I just love that phrase so much. And that's the next thing that, that, that is significant about whenever God makes promises, it's always by his grace and it always involves him being with us. See, God doesn't separate his promises from his presence. God's not a God who makes promises and goes, all right, just kind of let that happen out there. No, God makes his promises come true. He fulfills his promise himself by his very presence being there, which is why one of the most often repeated promises in the whole Bible, including to you, is this repeated phrase, Lord, be with, the Lord is with you, or God saying, I will be with you. Three times in Genesis, a bunch of times in Exodus, a couple times in Joshua, throughout the prophets, and then Jesus himself saying last words from, from the Matthew gospel, I will be with you. 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 This is the promise of God that just um, is a thread throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of history, and it's a promise that I want to invite you to grab a hold of today, that the Lord is with you. You cannot get away from him, not that you would want to. Well, actually, there are times in your life where you want to try to get away from God's presence. When is that? When you sin. And you're like, oh, I just feel so bad. <laughs> you know, God, you know, leave me. You know, I don't even want to ask for grace. I don't want to ask for forgiveness. I just, I just feel horrible, especially if you're a person who loves God. Sin should bother you. And sometimes our overactive conscience convinces us that when we sin, God leaves us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will. Again, Hebrews 13, we're, we're reading it, uh, I think, tomorrow. Maybe it was Saturday. I can't remember now. But I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So tell me, theologians, how does God's presence be with us? Through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, which is why in verse 35, Gabriel says, how's this going to happen? The Holy Spirit. Because remember, God, God does not separate his promises from his presence. So God makes the, pres the, pro the promise happen through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will bring this to pass. And then this phrase, no word from God will ever fail. In other words, God is faithful. Remember this. This is the way God's promises always work, that he's with you that he is gracing you, that his spirit is at work, and he is faithful. We're going to sing in a couple of seconds this, this song from 2 Corinthians 1.20. All of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ. <laughs> That's why he says, yes and amen. They're already as if they're fulfilled. So how do we respond? Let's just finish with this. How do we respond to God's promises? Well, Mary's last words in this text helps us see. She says, 
I am the Lord's servant. These are such amazing words. May your word, may your promises to me be fulfilled. I believe that you said the Lord is with me. I believe that. So I'm his servant. So you can write down the first thing. I need to believe what the angel said. I need to believe what the Bible says. I need to believe what Jesus says, that the Lord is with me. Now, all these things that I put up on the screen, and there's a lot more than that. The Lord is with me. So what do I do with him? Well, I become his servant. That's the next thing. How do I respond to God's promises? I believe that he's with me. And this language of servant is huge because this means I will no longer live my life to serve my purposes, but I will live the rest of my life to serve the purposes of God. That's a huge shift. Most people don't do that. Most people say, is there a way I can be a Christian and go to heaven and still do what I want and still serve my purposes, still fulfill my dreams? No. (laughs) Because if you're fulfilling your dreams, if you're pursuing your promises, if it's all about you, you've not surrendered your life to God. You are still Lord, not him. So this language of surrender to his will, that's what Mary's doing when she says, I am the Lord's servant. It's kind of like what her son, kind of famous Jesus, said, not my will, but yours be done. There's a beautiful echo in the words of Jesus of what Mary said here. Not the same words, but similar spirit. I'm the Lord's servant. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to do your will. Is this true of you? Seriously, are you here to do the Lord's will? Or are you always trying to figure out how you can get your will done and still kind of be considered a follower of Jesus? See what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah, I got real quiet. Being a disciple of Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian means that you give up your rights. You surrender to his will for your life. That's what Mary models for us, and it's so powerful. And then this this amazing phrase, may your word, we said promise, may your word, may your promises to me be fulfilled. Or one translation, let it be. (laughs) Let's sing. You know, let it be. Let it be as you have said. I, I believe your word, and I will trust in your word. So that's the third thing you can write down. Trust in God's word to you. Here is where God gives his promises. Those of you who can't see what I'm doing, I'm holding up the Bible. This is God's word. And all of God's promises are true and he is faithful and they will be fulfilled. Many of them already have been fulfilled, but there's still more to come. Will you trust in the promises of God? Because God is working out his purpose in your life. He's fulfilling his promises in your life. And you cooperate with him by believing, by surrendering, by trusting. That's the fourth thing you do, is you cooperate with his work in you. Again, how? By believing, surrendering, and trusting. That's how you do it. That's how you cooperate. You learn to breathe the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. You trust him. Because God's greatest promise calls for our greatest trust. 
that we put our trust in him and his promises. Remember, as we said, Last couple weeks, we've been using this phrase we got from Ruth that God's working in our lives and in our world to accomplish his purpose. He's doing a work. He's fulfilling his purposes for our good and his glory. This is what God's doing. It's not just what he did back in Mary's day. It's what he did back in Mary's, back in Mary's day in Jesus for you. Amen? Grab a hold of the promises of God. Make Jesus Lord of your life. Surrender your life to him and begin to walk in the promise of God. And Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem to his disciples for the gift my father promised. Promise of Jesus. What's the gift that the father promised? That's the Holy Spirit. He's the one that causes you to be born again. He's the one that regenerates you. He's the one that saves you. He's the one that applies the blood of Jesus Christ to your life. The Holy Spirit is is the one who regenerates your life and starts you on this journey of becoming more like Christ. Cooperate with him. Surrender to him. Breathe in the presence of the Holy Spirit because he is fulfilling the promises of God in Jesus. So that passage we quoted from 2 Corinthians, I'll end with, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. In other words, it's done. A resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. I want us to close this sermon by by singing this service, by singing this song. All of your promises are yes and amen. It's as if they're already done which means many of them are already done, but yet there are some to come. But because it is God who promised them and because God is faithful, they're as if done right now. Amen? Yes and amen? Well, then let's sing it. Send your feet. Father, we just, we, we celebrate Jesus. He is your greatest promise. Father, we thank you for Mary. We thank you for her obedience. We thank you for her faith. We thank you for her surrender but help us to surrender our lives to her son, to worship her son, and to live our lives as followers of Jesus, learning from Jesus, to become more like Jesus, living in the promises you have made, that he has made, and that the Holy Spirit is applying to our life. Yes, we say yes and amen. Pour out your grace upon us. Pour out your mercy. And even in this moment right here where so many of us are standing, may we sense that yes and amen in our spirit as we take you at your word, as we revel and and dance and celebrate in the promise that you have given in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.